Well, uh, you probably would have had an experience similar to mine. Uh, when I was growing up, I was uh, already football mad, even at that age. And uh, we were living on the fourth floor of this uh, council estate high-rise block of flats. So uh, fairly limited space. And um, I, my mom used to have in the lounge this, um, some of you ladies in sort of same age bracket would probably recognize them, some porcelain uh, f- figurines. Um, and these ones was a particular collection of uh, ballerinas. You know, qu- quite expensive. Now, obviously, with the space being very limited, uh, I, I still wanted to uh, improve my footballing skills, and I used to have a sponge ball. And for some reason, the lounge became, well, anything I wanted to become, you know, whether it was the San Siro or whether it's Old Trafford or Anfield or the Maracanã or you name it, the greatest stadium in the world, and different tournaments were taking place with obviously just me playing against me uh, with a sponge ball. As you can imagine, over the course of time, um, on, on one particular free kick that went wrong, the sponge ball made contact with one of my mom's figurines, and it toppled down on, 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 on the, the, the wooden bit that he was sitting on, and it just smashed into pieces. So, obviously, me being an absolute expert antique restorer <laughs> at the age of seven, I decided I had to uh, do something about this incredibly uh, damaging event. So, um, well, of course, I had some glue, paper glue, that is, and proceeded to try to put the pieces together. Suffice to say that it ended up with me being grounded for about three weeks and a whole host of other measures that were taken into place to try to dissuade one from uh, continuing to play football in the lounge. Point is, something similar happened to the universe in Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to delve in and see one of the greatest falls, one of the greatest disasters, one of the probably the most significant cosmic accident that could have ever happened that influenced humanity ever since, and really see what we can find in terms of discovering of God in there. On Sunday mornings until Christmas, what we're going to do is just going to look at different encounters that people had with God and try to see what we can learn about him in that. So we're in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Adam and Eve being tempted and falling into temptation. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You would certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you not eaten from the tree that I commanded you? Not to eat from. The man said, the woman you put there with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you, you will strike his heel. So the woman received this message. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit of the tree... About which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work to the ground, the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is the story of man's fall. And if you're thinking about encounters with God, this is probably one of the most crucial ones. In order to understand everything about life, everything about theology, everything about us and God, we must understand what happened right there in this cosmic accident that influenced humanity ever since. What do we see of God in here? The first thing that strikes me is the sense of a God of freedom. Many of you probably would have seen the Truman Show. How many people have seen the Truman Show? Quite a lot of people. It was quite a groundbreaking movie that illustrated how right at the very beginning 
of reality TV. A show was created artificially in a studio, making people believe that they could control what was happening. Unfortunately, somebody was caught in that show thinking they were living real life, but instead it was a life controlled by somebody else. God did not create a world that was a Truman Show-like world created in a studio where everything was controlled, where you didn't have any choice. You see, God could have created the world in such a way that this would have never happened. But instead, our God is a God who gives freedom. And he created Adam and Eve with that ability to make a decision. And the, the environment and the system wasn't a closed and controlled one where this could never occur. That's why the serpent, which is Satan disguised as a serpent, comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them. And they have a choice. God had already created them. And God had already commissioned them to be stewards of creation. So he had given them a sense of purpose. And God really wanted to make sure that there was a condition. And it's, it's amazing. They could do everything and anything they wanted apart from one thing. Eat of that tree. But God gave them a choice. He could have so programmed them in such a way that they wouldn't, would have never had a choice. And therefore God would have not have to give them the freedom. But that's our God. Our God is the God that created a world which wasn't a close control space where temptation couldn't come and where Adam and Eve didn't have to make a choice or couldn't make a choice. But instead, he created this world where the serpent can come and can bring that temptation to Adam and Eve. And this is consistent. In, in, and in Jesus' teaching, it keeps striking me how often he talks about that sense of freedom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, gives a parable, a story of two people building a house. And one builds a house on the rock and one builds a house on the sand. And the storm comes and there are different consequences. But there's a choice. Again, Jesus talks about the narrow way, few on it, and leads to eternal life. Wide way, many of it, leads to destruction. There's a choice. He tells probably one of the most well-known parables that we looked at, the parable of the prodigal son, where the son comes and insults the father and stupidly asks for his inheritance at a young age, probably with the knowledge that he will end up squandering it, and yet the father gives him the freedom to make that choice and take it. Consistently, the God that we see revealed in Scripture and the God that we see revealed here in Genesis 3 is a God that offers freedom. Right when Jesus was crucified, there are two thieves. They make a choice. One chooses to ask Jesus for forgiveness and to be accepted and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. The other one just mocks Jesus. It's that poignant picture with Jesus in the middle and a choice to the left and a choice to the right, parting ways. A young ruler comes and asks Jesus about eternal life. 
And when Jesus says, well, you know, what have you done to qualify yourself for eternal life? And he just brings a whole list of moral gains in which he's trying to impress Jesus. And then Jesus says to him, that's all good, but I want you to do one more thing. Sell all that you have. And he was a wealthy young man, successful young man. Sell all that you have. Come and follow me. And he turned around and walked away. Jesus never chased him. There is a choice because God is a God of freedom where people are given this invitation and this opportunity to respond. God doesn't control it. And this is the thing that really strikes you as you look at this incident in, 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 in Genesis chapter 3. The other thing that is striking is that God is a God of justice. When Adam and Eve fall into sin, by distrusting God, by believing the lies that Satan as a serpent comes and brings it to them, there are consequences. And God said so. And God keeps his word. It would have been so easy for us to imagine that this loving God who offers freedom of choice from Adam and Eve, would also say, well, it doesn't really matter. That's okay. It's only a bite that you've taken. It's only one little thing that you've done wrong. But there are consequences to their disobedience. And that is because God is just. God keeps his word. God is righteous, if you want to use a theological term for it. God doesn't just look away and pretend it didn't happen, they have to suffer the consequences of those choices that they have made. And as a result of it, there's a whole host of things that are happening. God confronts them. God is looking to bring up the issue. <laughs> I mean, most people don't love confrontation. There are some people that find confrontation a little bit easier, and there are some weirdos who love to you know, just go looking for confrontation. But the vast majority of people just avoid confrontation, and sometimes at any cost. We're just not going to bring that up. Yeah, you've offended me, you've upset me, you've done something deeply hurtful, but I'm just not going to bring it up. And for us Brits, it's kind of like a national sport. Let's just not bring that up. Let's just pretend it didn't happen, and let's just simmer it inside. God isn't like that. God doesn't overlook it, doesn't pretend it didn't happen, and he's confronting them. He's going to talk to Adam and Eve. He's asking them a question. He's saying, where are you? What have you done? Now, those were, to be fair, rhetorical questions. It's like my mom, when she found the broken ballerina, you know, she didn't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out what the heck went on. It's the same with God. God knew exactly what happened, but he confronts them. He asked the question just as much as you who are parents have really become very good at this. You know, you're asking a question because you want to bring a confrontation. You want to bring a realization that something was wrong and, and, and what's the problem with it to create a dialogue. And God is bringing that confrontation. And then he highlights as he goes through it, all the consequences. And the consequences, first of all, it almost looks, and again, if you've got three kids or, you know, three or four that have been involved in something, 
Of course, what you do, you probably dish out consequences, I'm not saying punishments, consequences to them, to each one of them. And this is what God is doing. He's taking them one by one. Serpent, this is what's going to happen to you. Woman, this is what's going to happen to you. Adam, this is what's going to happen to you. Everyone has to face the consequences of what they've done because God is just. And that's part of his nature in what he does. And as a result of it, in every possible area for humanity, everything changes physically. Death and suffering enters the world. People say, why is, why is there cancer? Why, why, why are there wars? Why, why, why are all these things happening? It all goes back to this episode. And as a result of the fall, everything has changed. So he talks about the woman's suffering. He talks about Adam working the ground and not getting the reward that he should get out of the ground. It sounds like Churchill's speech with toil, blood, and tears. That's the reality of what sin does. Physically, spiritually, and relationally, there's a hint about the conflict that is birthed there between the man and the woman who was supposed to be Together and one. People say, why, why is that? Why are there wars in the world? Well, they are because after sin came into the world, human relationships were just torn apart. And this virus entered in and destroyed everything ever since. There are consequences because God is a God of justice in this. But it doesn't stop there. And a beautiful thing that you see here, it's in verse 21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. See, in terms of their reaction, Adam and Eve's reaction, everything was just a mess. If you're a parent and you're confronting a situation that has occurred, you know, like the, the, the accident with the ballerina, you probably wouldn't be pleased at how Adam and Eve react. And again, this is what sin does. Sin takes us into a downward spiral. And one sin is followed by another, and another, and another, and another. You know, how many, how many times have we done something wrong, and then we covered it up with another one or two or three other wrong things? You know, so let's take safe people, somebody that's a celebrity or a politician, you know, who has an affair. Well, that's, that's number one issue. And then they try to cover it up with lies. And then they're trying to eliminate the evidence, so they're hiring somebody. You know, it just spirals downward. And this is the reaction of Adam and Eve. First of all, it was denial. <laughs> It's, like, it's not me, I've not done anything wrong. And then it's blame. And it's this, you know, just continuous chain reaction of blame. You know, it's, it's the woman. Oh, it's the serpent. And actually both of them indirectly point towards God. It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent you created. So there's that sense of... Just blaming and blaming and blaming and blaming. And then it's the shame. They hide in the garden. They realize they're naked because that's what sin does. 
sin taints us and shame enters into our world. And they begin to see themselves in a different light as they've never seen themselves before. And then what they do, they do a very poor DIY, you know, trying to cover themselves. It's like me with a paper glue on the porcelain. It's rubbish. But God steps in with his grace. And this is what in theology is known as the Proto-Evangelion. Basically, this is a forward picture of what God was to do on a mass scale through the coming of Jesus. God covers their sin, covers their nakedness, covers that shame by himself reading between the lines, killing an animal and getting the skin of the animal to cover them. Much better than the leaf job that they did. That would have been temporary and would have needed to be replaced. And this is that forward picture of what God was going to do when Jesus comes into our world. As Jesus takes on that mission of reconciliation between Adam and Eve's race, the humankind, and the God that they have betrayed and distrusted. And the relationship that was broken, Jesus brings it back together. And when he gives his life on the cross, he pays for the penalty of sin. And just as much as for God, it would have been costly. A life had to go, the life of the animal, to provide the skin in order to cover up. The life of the Son of God is given in order to provide that covering over our sin and shame that has happened as Jesus gives us that. God restores their dignity by covering them up himself. I love that. He clothed them. You can see the grace of God coming in into this incredibly painful moment for Adam and Eve and the human race. But don't miss the point. It doesn't void the consequences. You would remember an incident where David, who was a man after God's own heart, a good king, a really good king and a good godly man, who many occasions he, he had an opportunity to mess up and sin and he didn't. But then he has this moment when he sees a woman bathing and he ends up sleeping with her. And there's a consequence. She's pregnant. And the baby becomes ill and dies. And that's one of the poignant biblical reminders that although God gives forgiveness to David and he restores him and the relationship is strong, there's a consequence that is still there. And just because God has grace, it doesn't always void the consequences of our sins. And the amazing thing is that through Jesus' grace, we find that incredible hope that is there. What do we do of this encounter? What do we see of this God that can challenge but both comfort our hearts in this? I want to say this morning, and I, it might be just timely for you. I haven't got a clue what's going on in your life right now. But it might be timely for you that you're here this morning and you're hearing this story, which for me is a little bit of a warning story. 
And maybe start sensing which God is saying to you and I and us all. Don't fall for the lies of Satan. He's always going to wrap things up in a particular way. To make it look good. But he's going to cheat you. And he's going to lie. St. Augustine said these words. Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition. And try desperately to fulfill it without God. That's really, really good. That's what he does. And sometimes he's just not waiting, not being patient. Sometimes just being impetuous. And maybe that is just a warning. And I want to say to you, don't fall for the lies. And don't listen to Satan's voice. Don't bite that hook that's trying to lure you. The same time I want to say to you as part of that, you know, don't be naive. God is just. If we choose to sin, if we choose to reject him, if we choose our own way, there are going to be consequences. It's impossible not to. And that should be an incredible deterrent. It should make us think harder beforehand. I always say to people when, when I'm having this conversation, try to picture what would happen if you were to disobey God and what God has already said in Scripture will become true. Play that game before you jump in. It's almost like that, that, that crazy thing. We, we, we used to have uh, a habit. Uh, it wasn't quite Devil's Bridge jumping off the bridge, but we have a river. Uh, it's a canal river that runs through the middle of the city back at home. And very often all the young guys would do these competitions where you just jump in into the river, you know, just to prove you're hard. (laughs) And we used to hear these anecdotal stories, you know, of bad things happening to those who do. You know, and of course, you're kind of thinking, well, you know, there's the anecdotal story that could or could not be true, and there's your maids and the peer pressure. Strong competition there. And all it took... It's over the course of five, six years to see one of the young guys jumping in right into a fridge that had been thrown in and remaining impaled there. Or another young guy who, again, there was just a a piece of metal that was sticking under the water, outside of the ground. Again, all it takes is to see those. What would happen if you would have seen those And you played that before you jumped off the bridge. That's what I'm trying to say, spiritually speaking. Those horror stories that we hear, and we hear them, of lives being wrecked through disobedience to God and sin. And actually, before you leave home and hook up with somebody else, leaving your wife and your kids, you play some stuff in your head that you're just thinking, okay, how is this going to play out in five years' time or in ten years' time? What are the consequences? Because we don't do that. And that's the important thing to realize, that there are consequences to our sins because God is just. But at the same time, I want to say, praise God there is grace and restoration. We're not stuck with our consequences forever. And in Christ, there's this great reversal that is happening with the forgiveness and the restoration and the covering up of sin and shame that comes in Christ. Where would we be? Without that. But that's the picture that is being painted here.
And maybe another one that probably we do well to listen to. Our culture is just rife with not wanting to take responsibility. And I think it's particularly more challenging for a younger generation. There's been a culture that's been created where it's okay to make excuses for everything and anything and blame everyone and everyone. And I think this is going to be a challenge to discipleship. This is going to be a challenge to how we deal with the sin in our life. Because if it's always going to be somebody else's fault, whether it's the teachers or the parents or the boss at work or the area that I'm living in, or the education I did or didn't get, or the health that I have or don't have, we're going to be constantly trapped in the same place where Adam and Eve were trapped, where we wouldn't be willing to own our sin in order to receive grace. And you know it. You may have people in your family that are addicted. And it's one of the most heartbreaking things is to have a relative who's suffering from addiction and they just won't admit it. And people often say, there's just no hope until there comes that moment where somebody is standing up in an AA meeting and is saying, hi, my name is Christy and I'm an alcoholic. Because that's the beginning where grace begins to come on. If it's going to be, it's my mom's fault and it's my dad's fault, it's my boss's fault and it's because I didn't get the grades in school and because that teacher spoke to me. Not that those things don't matter. I'm not minimizing those. But they will just keep us back. And spiritually speaking, in terms of discipleship, this would be really, really tough. Because it's only people that recognize they need grace that can find grace. If we think we are owed something, we're going to find it very difficult to find grace. It's the thief on the cross. The contrast. One is just totally diverting for his, from his state. And the other one is saying, calling out to Jesus for forgiveness. This is an important part of really receiving God's grace in this. Let's not blame. Let's not hide. Let's come with confidence because God is a God of grace. who clothed Adam and Eve and in Christ who gives us his clothing of righteousness in that. One little thing, I didn't know whether I should mention this, but I'll say it anyway, because I think it is right. I think maybe this would be something that would be stimulating as a conversation for those of you who are parents, and for those of you who are in leadership, whether it's in a church capacity or whether it's in a secular environment. I want to throw this challenge as a conversation topic for you. If God didn't create a controlled environment to manipulate Adam and Eve into making choices and taking a direction that, frankly, would have been a lot easier for him to deal with. What does that mean for our parenting? And what does that mean for our leadership in terms of control, manipulation, and freedom of choice? Just something for us to think through. What I really love as I'm wrapping this up is is, is a study case. And you've got the Apostle Paul as a study case of, of this incredible sense of we have a God of grace 
that brings incredible favor. Paul was a, a, a very promising young Jewish scholar who, when Jesus came on the scene and the Christians began to form as a movement, he saw them as a threat. He saw them as a sect that was heretical to Judaism. And he made sure that he was pursuing them, trying to eliminate this sect with everything that he had within his being. The pinnacle of that being present at a stoning of one of the early Christian leaders, a deacon in the early church, his name being Stephen. And as Stephen was being stoned to death, Paul, going also under the name of Saul, was present there. While he was still trying to destroy Christianity, not in Jerusalem, but this way, this time on the way to Damascus, he has an encounter with Jesus, supernatural encounter with Jesus, in which he is blinded. And I think there's a very powerful metaphor in that. And it takes a few days until he receives his sight back. And after that, because he had encountered Jesus, he becomes a missionary, a church planter, a pastor, a theologian, a man whose life had turned 180 degrees. Do you want to know what he says about himself? Listen to these words in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I'm pretty sure if there was a comparison chart, and by the way, there isn't one, there would have been a lot worse people than the Apostle Paul. But he's honest about his state. And then he says, continuing, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, just in case anybody was in doubt, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. A man who was broken by sin, and we don't really know what went on through Paul's heart when he realized what he had done. And yet a man who received God's grace in such a powerful way that it changed him forever. Listen, that is Paul's testimony. That's Paul's story. But it is, for many of us, our story too. We can say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. We can say, I have been met by God's grace. And this is a a wonderful reminder of what God can do. This God who gives freedom. This God who's just. This God who brings grace. And he brings a cause for celebration for those of us who know that grace And maybe it's just that invitation this morning. If you haven't experienced that forgiveness in your life and that grace in your life, why not today? What an incredible opportunity to receive that and experience what Paul experienced. Experienced what God wants to bring through the coming of Jesus into this world. A God of grace. Let's stand together. As Phil and the band come and lead us on.